Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Over the summer, millions of people in Hong Kong took to the streets in an unprecedented protest against a proposed law that could allow for the extradition of people in Hong Kong to mainland China. Protesters saw this proposed law as an affront to what is known as the one country, two systems policy. This is the idea that though Hong Kong is formally part of China, it also has a special political status as a former British colony, and that status includes a degree of autonomy and freedoms from the political system of mainland China. But since those huge protests against that extradition bill over the summer, the situation in Hong Kong has changed dramatically. Protests have continued and have widened to include other demands. This includes a demand for universal suffrage for the people of Hong Kong. The protests and the police reaction to it have also become increasingly violent. On the line with me to discuss the situation in Hong Kong and how the protest movement has changed since those initial mass protests over the summer is Victoria Tinbo Hoi. She is a political science professor at Notre Dame. She discusses some of the major events in Hong Kong over the summer and fall, and we have an in-depth discussion about what exactly the protesters are demanding and why Beijing has enlisted the Hong Kong police to violently crack down on these protesters. Victoria Tinbo Hui recently testified to Congress about the situation in Hong Kong and have posted a link to her testimony on the podcast homepage. This episode does a great job of explaining the current situation in Hong Kong and the trajectory of the protest movement. I think you will appreciate it. If you're new to the podcast, please do visit globaldispatchespodcast.com. You can unlock the most recent about 300 episodes by just subscribing to the feed. So please do subscribe to the podcast if you have not already done so. If you are a regular listener, thank you for tuning in. Please leave a review on iTunes, share the podcast with your friends, and as always, feel free to reach out to me. I I love hearing from you. And this episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the link to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. You can also just send me an email and be happy to put you in touch with the good folks at Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. All right, now here is my conversation with Professor Victoria Tinbo Hui. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. 
Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. On June 9th, they put it's a million people protested, and then the governments refused to uh, answer to address their concern. And then on Wednesday, June 12th, they, the government was just going to go ahead and vote on the extradition bill, but then tens of thousands of people surrounded the Legislative Council building. And that stopped the it stopped legislators from entering. And then by the end of the day, the government called the protests of the day riots and then said they were still going to go ahead. We'll just basically have to pick another date. And people got really angry because the police already used excessive force on that day and also um, arrested many people. And people were also uh, very upset about the characterization of riots. And then on June 15, Saturday, Carrie Lam, the chief executive, she said that, okay, we're going to suspend the bill. But by then, people were not going to accept just simple suspension because if so long as the bill was still on the table, was still on the agenda, the government could just nick it in any time. And then, of course, the government had enough votes uh, with the pro-establishment camp in the Legislative Council to push through any bill. So the next day, another Sunday, Two, millions, two million people protested and with the five demands. So the five demands were, are, and so far they've been the same. Um, the first one is the formal withdrawal of the extradition bill. As opposed the to like the one, suspension of the, the uh, extradition right. bill, they want the full formal withdrawal of it. Correct. The second one is to drop the characterization of the June 12 protests as riots. And the, uh, the, as riots, and then, why, then, is, why, is, why is that characterization problematic from the perspective of protesters, riots in particular? Well, because if you are charged with rioting, you are subject to 10 years uh, of imprisonment. And oh. also, if the government admitted that, oh, we made a mistake in even introducing the extradition bill. If they made a mistake and the people protested to stop the government from making a mistake, then why should those people, you know, basically they should be thanked, right, rather than being charged with rioting. Mm. Okay, so so the and, first yeah. is is the suspension or the withdrawal of the extradition the bill. Of the it. second is to recharacterize uh, those initial to protests, to drop it as, as a riot, which carries legal significance. Yeah. And relatedly, another demand is to to release the those uh, arrested for rioting because a bunch of people were already arrested on Wednesday, June twelfth, and so the demand was also to to just let these people up again for the same reason. You know, they actually you should thank them rather than arresting them. And then uh, another demand is to have independent investigation into police abuses because the police were already caught on film um, using excessive force, firing rubber bullets and tear gas on, on June 12. And the last demand, this actually changed over time, but on June 16, the fifth demand was for Carrie Lam, the chief executive, to step down. This later was changed to a reopening of... Uh, of how to introduce genuine universal suffrage in Hong Kong, which really was the rallying cry for the umbrella movement. I, I want to spend a lot of um, I, I want to spend a lot of time on that last demand on universal suffrage. Uh, mm -hmm. But before we get there, you know, uh, have are any of those previous four demands have any of them been met uh, by the authorities in any yeah, meaningful so, way? Yes. You're right. So then the government uh, for the entire summer refused to answer any of those demands, any of those five demands. And so during the summer, protests just escalated. On July 1st, uh, hundreds of protesters stormed into the Legislative Council building. 
And then on July 21st, people could continue to escalate. And then they also march on to the liaison office in Hong Kong, basically Beijing's representation in Hong Kong. And they defaced the national emblem outside. And that's those two incidences actually gave Beijing the excuse to say, well, look at these rioters, look at these people who use violence and they keep talking about um, peaceful protests and look at the, the level of violence. And, and then from then on, actually, state-owned media would really gear up attacks on the protest. And so, but then in July, people actually, other than just, you know, vandalizing symbols of authority, they didn't really do much beyond that. But then as the government continued to refuse to answer any of the demands, things got even more escalated. And most of all, actually Beijing's Hong Kong Macau Affairs Office, they began to hold very rare conferences talking about Hong Kong. The first one was, was uh, in late July and then another one in early August. And they said that we, we are fully behind the chief executive Carrie Lam we are also fully behind the police force. And they said that you, the police force should not really worry about any backfiring. They should just use, take, use, do whatever it takes to stop the riots. And so on, on another Sunday, August 11, that was the first time when police officers were caught with film um, dressed as protesters. And then because other fellow protesters didn't know that, and then they were just pinned on the ground. They were pushed to the ground. They were arrested. They had their faces smashed to the ground. And then when they were all wounded, um, the police would again rub their face on, on the ground even more. So to cause more damage or to directly uh, fire pepper spray on the wounds. And that's is what some people would call the first bloody Sunday. And it was a dramatic escalation. And I mean, then, it, it sounds. I mean, it just—it sounds like the way you're describing it is that you know, after those initial protests, really both sides hardened their positions, and the you know pro-China Beijing side uh, started to engage increasingly in the violent suppression of these protests, in addition to you know hardening their their terms. Yes, correct. For the protesters, they have been sticking to the five demands, and we're going to talk about you know later on um, when the first demand actually was met. But then throughout the whole summer, the the administration, the Hong Kong government, refused to to make concession. And then it was very interesting that one day a Reuters correspondent asked uh, directly Carrie Lam, "So, Mrs. Lam, do you even have the autonomy to formally withdraw the bill?" She had no answer for that. Essentially, this whole time, Beijing was really behind uh, ruling Hong Kong from across the border. And even the day before Carrie Lam suspended the bill, she had a meeting in Shenzhen with the vice premier, Han Zhang. And so everything that she can do these days is that she has to have permission approval from, from Beijing leaders. So she really and is that, like a, a puppet. I mean, in, in pretty is. much the sense of, you know, the, the literal sense of the, the, the term. Yeah. And this is actually the crux of why, you know, that we're going to have to spend more time talking about the fifth demand, genuine universal suffrage. Because for a lot of Hong Kong people, Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong with a high degree of autonomy, all these promises are just basically thrown out of the window. It's a, it's a very thinly masked direct rule from Beijing. And just that, you know, there's a public face of um, the Hong Kong chief executive and she answers to Beijing rather than to Hong Kong people. But let me go back to um, police abuses. And many people would say that, oh, Beijing has exercised restraint. 
because we haven't seen Beijing sending out, rolling out uh, military tanks to to crack to crack down on the protests all these months. The thing is that Beijing also understood very well that the minutes they sent out the PLA, now in fact. The PLA are actually the People's Liberation Army. They have garrisons in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. In yeah, this many is the, the, the Chinese uh, military, the Chinese army yes. that has a major base in Hong Kong. But so far, um, Chinese soldiers the, of, of the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, they, they've remained in their barracks. And, and the violence that you're describing have been conducted by Hong Kong police. Yes. So this is also why that, that Beijing understood that if they, the minutes they send those uh, Chinese military troops, then they would take away completely, debunk the facade of one country, two systems, uh, the Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong. So they refrain from doing that. But then, as we mentioned before, that they have been using the police. They have subverted Hong Kong's police force. Now, Hong Kong's police force used to be Asia's best. And through many decades, actually in previous decades of protests, I was involved and then we would never look at police officers with any kind of hostility. They were always very helpful. We'll even be making high fives with them. And that began to change um, during the umbrella movements when the police began to be used as political tools, arresting only the opposition and always sheltering people who were um, pro-Beijing or pro-regime. So thugs who attacked protesters would, you know, would would be able to get away or would be given very lenient sentences, whereas um, protesters would get a lot, much harder treatment. So, so this time when Beijing has been hiding behind, just using the local police forces to do the dirty work, to do the beatings, this actually, in a way, a very bloody crackdown, even without the PLA. This is why, so the early, so the first day on June 12th, the po- police already abusive um, use of force in, in, provoked the call for an independent investigation into abuses. And those abuses have only got worse over time. And the, and the, the turning point was August 11. And from then on, um, beatings or protesters or even passersby, it's become routine that people get have the bones br- uh, broken at moments of arrest. They have their heads beaten by batons. And then when they're taken into detention centers, they, they come out eventually, and then they said that they are subject to even more torture in detention center. Can These I ask, like, really, why, why yes. is it, do you seem, that there was this deliberate decision um, to sort of you know, flip the violence switch uh, by the, the Hong Kong police? Now, assuming that, you know, Beijing has the, the degree of control over the actions of the Hong Kong police, like, why is it that um, Beijing decided that the violent suppression of these protests was the best and most effective way to well, go about it. Yes. Things. Yeah, not just that Beijing can actually control the Hong Kong police. And in fact, the Hong Kong police force may not even listen, may not be under the command of the Hong Kong's chief ex- executive anymore. For example, on July 21st, there were these thuggish attacks on protesters and passersby alike at the Yunlong train station. And then the police, they literally looked the other way. And then later on, they were filmed that they were shaking hands and making high fives with these people. With I, I, I say, I, I've seen the, the video of those attacks and, you know, it, 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 people should, should, you know, check that out themselves. But it's really horrendous. You have just people that are exiting trains are just getting summarily beaten upon exiting uh, uh, these, these subway trains. Yes. And then several days later, the chief secretary, the second in command in Hong Kong, 
he came out and said that well, we can we we regret that there are discrepancies between our police force performance and Hong Kong people's expectation. Immediately, so, the the police officers' unions came out to, to to denounce him. Now, in denouncing their chief, they actually the police officers actually violated police officers' rules and procedures, but they suffered no consequences. Well, essentially, so, well, well, that can, is, can I ask yeah. this? So, so, like, why is it then that Beijing decided to? Uh, to sort of, you know, to enable violence against these protesters. Yeah, the, the, because they really cannot use, they feel that they cannot send out the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, to quell Hong Kong protests. Now, Hong Kong, they want to maintain the facade of one country, two systems, because that Beijing has benefited a lot from Hong Kong special customs status. And we can see that a lot of the mainland companies state-owned companies they have they have their their shell companies or their regional the the uh, branches in Hong Kong and that allows them to import dual-use technologies because the US will not send any dual-use technologies to mainland China hmm. but Hong Kong because it enjoys special custom status so Hong Kong based companies can import dual-use technologies and turn around and take them over to move them to uh, to across the border and also a lot of the um, financial companies in Hong Kong are now controlled by mainland China. They have raised a lot of money uh, through the Hong Kong stock markets. And so maintaining the facade of one country, two systems is very important. So they don't want to send out the PLA. At the same time, they don't want to make any concessions to the demands. And then what do they do? What do you do if you have people who continue to protest? Is that you want to beat? You want to intimidate? You want to arrest the troublemakers? You want to do, to arrest the most the most dedicated and then intimidate the rest? This is why the police have been used as political tools to beat up people. So, as we referenced earlier, one of the the key demands, one of the key five demands, is universal suffrage. Can you just briefly explain how elections work uh, right now? under this you know, non-universal suffrage pretense? Yes. Hong Kong people technically can vote. So the other day um, I was talking, the, the, one of the mainland students at another talk asked, you know, I'm a mainland, I don't have the, the right to vote, and you guys have the right to vote, so why don't you guys exercise the vote and change the government? The thing is that the basic law stipulates, essentially has very stringent stipulations to make sure that, yes, Hong Kong people have the right to vote, but then the votes don't matter much. So with the chief executive, Carrie Lam, in the previous round, was chosen by a 1,200-member election committee. And the election committee is mostly dominated by pro-Beijing, pro-establishment uh, 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 people. And the, the, the pro-democracy camp would never have any majority. And so this is one problem. And this is why that whoever Beijing wants can just become the chief executive. And with the Legislative Council, there are 70 seats, but half of those seats are not subject to direct elections. Half of them are, but half of them are not. And, half, and, and then half of them are chosen by functional constituencies. And many of those have only dozens of corporate votes. And this is why the government is guaranteed enough votes to push through any bill. So if the extradition bill is retabled again, it would have enough votes to, to, to go through. 
So, so basically, you're describing like a system in which um, there are like select electors uh, that mm-hmm. have ultimate control over selecting who will be, you know, the the chief executive or uh, who will be on the the legislative council. Um, and in that system in which there are electors as opposed to like a more direct democracy, pro-democracy mm-hmm. voices are undermined. Correct. So, yeah, so you can say that the 1,200 member uh, election committee, essentially, these are electors. So then um, on November 24th, there was a district council election. And we've been reading in the news that the pro-democracy candidates won in a landslide. Now, this is important in a way that usually the district councils don't really do much other than, okay, you know, uh, setting up a new bus stop or, uh, you know, Cleaning up markets or public very like local local neighborhood based issues. Yeah. But the thing was that this was the first election after months of protest. So people on all sides were seeing it as a referendum on the protesters versus the government. And and you say these district councils, as opposed to the chief executive or the legislative council, actually are directly elected, right? Correct. This is the only only set of bodies in Hong Kong that are fully directly elected. Not just that. It's also based on an, an electoral arrangement of first past the post, which means that whoever gets the majority and then wins. This is why the popular vote for the for pro democracy candidates the the pr- proportion was about fifty seven percent, whereas the pro establishment camp got about forty one percent of the popular vote. But because, you know, because of the first past the post arrangement, so pro-democracy candidates won 17 of 18 district councils. They, they won the majority. And in some district, in some district councils, they won every single seat. And one out of the 18, they don't get the majorities only because that is the district council in outlying uh, islands. And those islands, they have pre-assigned seats for rural committees, and rural committees are uniformly pro-Beijing. Mm-hmm. So those seats are not even were not even subject to the election in uh, on November twenty fourth. So it's fair to say that these district elections, um, you know, if signal a profound support for the pro-democracy movement. Um, but also that these elections happened in the wake of this also incredibly violent crackdown at a university in, in Hong Kong. Again, see, could you just, I guess, describe the scene of that violent Hong Kong, vi- violent crackdown at the university and its broader significance to the, the overall movement for democracy? Yes. So after, so so essentially, I would say that things calmed down a little bit in late October, and over time. So, so we talk about you, uh, you know, in July that people was were desecrating the flag, the national flag, the the national emblem outside the liaison office. But by August, people got, and especially after the the escalation by the police on August eleventh people began to also throw Molotov cocktails in August. And once protesters began to use Molotov cocktail, then the police would also have a very good excuse to then intensify their crackdown. So it's become increasingly bloody. Things kind of calmed down in late October. I kind of attributed to the visit of two senators um, who actually went to Hong Kong and then called for calm in Hong Kong. And I think that because at the time, the Senate had not really 
discuss the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. And when you have two senators coming to Hong Kong saying that, you know, calm down, that you don't, you, if you guys um, continue to throw Molotov cocktail, it's going to make it harder for us to hmm. pass the bill. Who, 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 are, the, who he, are the two U.S. senators that went? Uh, we can look that up. Yeah, I have to look it up. Sorry. Okay, it's just okay. kind of the name skip my mind at the moment. So in any case, things calm down. Except then, things escalated again. With the first undisputed protest-related death of a university student. So there was a University of Science and Technology student. And the police line was that he fell to his death uh, when he was trying to escape from tear gas, pepper spray, and jump out of a parking lot. Except that the death was very curious. One thing was that the, the, the police blocked ambulances from going to rescue him. And that's because he, the, the injuries were so severe that if you delayed ambulances for 30 minutes, that basically could be fatal. And another thing is that the police said that the, the student jumped down. And if someone jumped down and get himself killed, you would expect to have severe injuries on your hands and legs, on your limbs. But the student actually didn't have injuries on the limbs, but had very, very severe injuries in his head. So chances are he he was pushed or beaten, something like that. Yeah, unless he was trying to, you know, dive. And no one would want to do that when you are jumping, you know, over the fence. And so people were very angry about it. And then that, and then when they were mourning the death of the student, then uh, the next day, the police actually opened fire at point blank and opened fire at, at another student, young student, 18-year-old, in the chest. And that person has so far survived, but that was the second case of very severe inju- injuries with live ammunition. With that, that provoked a lot of the young students. The, so the two cases, one death and one severe injuries provoked a lot of the students to then call for a general strike and general class boycott. And university students also figured that actually all the universities in Hong Kong are strategically located along major highways. So if they, from their, from their uh, very safe hideouts of, of university campuses and they go out and block major transportation routes, they could actually paralyze Hong Kong. So they were all doing that. And then the police picked first picked Chinese university in the new ter- territories, and essentially they tried to block a particular bridge connecting the major Tolo Harbor Highway to the campus. And that siege lasted for t- two days, and people got very worried. But then the police retreated, and a few days later, they decided to the police police decided to then lay a dramatic siege at the the Polytechnic University, which is located in the heart of the city. And it also is right next to the Hong Kong Cross Harbor Tunnel. And the Cross Harbor Tunnel is very important in Hong Kong's transportation network. And the students were blocking that. And then the government, the, the police laid siege to it. And then other people were like, well, we have to go all go show our support and help to defend the Polytechnic. And I'm a suspicion, a lot of Hong Kong analysts suspect that the police did that on purpose, and because also a new police chief uh, had just been sworn in, Chris Tang, he is he's supposed to have 
some links to the Yunlong gangsters mm. who, who made the attacks on July 21st because uh, he had actually worked in the district before. So, so the idea is that this police strategy was a deliberate way to attract the more radical elements of the protesters to that polytechnic university. Uh, yes. And a, then they would subsequently lay siege to the university and maybe round up the most radical elements uh, of the protest movement at the university. Yes, so it turned out that not, you know, there are a lot of um, uh, the university owned students, they were there. At the same time, many other people, even secondary school students and other professionals also went to, um, quote unquote, defend Polytechnic. And in one big operation, in one siege, the government, the police arrested 1,377 people, something like that, 1,300 pe- pe- uh, people in one operation. So essentially, most of the very the, um, hardcore people were out there. Now, most of them were arrested from the campus because they because the police laid siege to the campus. There was not enough food. People were hungry, and they were all stressed out. And a lot of people just followed, essentially decided to walk out. But as before, people decided to walk out. It's also important that the government, were, the the police were threatening to use live fire to um, to stop again, quote unquote, the riots. And it sounded, it looked and smelled like Tenement 2.0 to many international observers. And it was in that, so the, the attack on Chinese university and also the attack on Polytechnic actually then finally got the Senate to pass the Hong Kong Human Rights mm-hmm. and Democracy Act. And, and that, that happened, actually, yeah. Yeah, well, so, so that happened just, uh, you know, maybe a week before we're speaking now. Um, right. Can, can you now describe and and explain like where do you see this this movement headed where do you see the situation headed i mean we're, we're speaking shortly after that that um crackdown at the polytechnic university shortly after the elections and shortly after the u.s senate passed that uh hong kong bill threatening sanctions where are we headed right now yeah, so what we have now is that, um, so the district council elections, the pro-democracy came on a landslide, and then um, most people were, so, were supporting the five demands. Oh, just just one um, footnote is that the first demand formal withdrawal of the bill was, it was finally announced on September 4th. And I would say that that had a lot to do with the fact that Congress was actually convening and had the first set of hearings on U.S.-China relations. I testify at uh, Congress on that day and that several hours before the, the congressional hearing. And Carrie Lam announced that she was going to formally withdraw the bill. So it's, what's interesting here is, is, is that you've come back to this point a couple of times, is that it seems that the U.S. does have important leverage here. And at least uh, the legislative branch is is able and willing to to use that leverage in support of the protesters. Correct. And I also would say that even the suspension of the bill was curiously timed with the fact that Rubio retabled the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act on June 13th. Hmm. And then, so so um, you see that was Marco Rubio, senator from Florida. Yes. And he is the one who has been behind the bill. And in fact, when the Senate, when uh, the Senate Speaker McConnell was sitting on the bill, for more than a month, because after the House passed it right away, the Senate would not move. And Rubio was like, I'm just going to really go knock on, on McConnell's door. And then he did uh, when the police were, were attacking, were invading Chinese youth. And it became worse. 
uh, with the, the siege of University of Science and Technology. And so the, the Senate passed the, the act. And so the, I th- you're quite right. I think that uh, there are a lot of these really uh, important coincidences. I would also say that there was a lot of talk that the district council election should be delayed or canceled because of the escalation of violence. Um, the pro-democracy can, the pro-establishment can. They were very fearful that with the protest that they were going to lose big time. They didn't expect to lose so big, but they thought that they were going to lose. And so they were pressuring the governments to at least delay, if not post, if not cancel the election altogether. But then I think by that time, the the act was basically set to be passed with veto proof so that um, I think there was a, quite a bit of worry about sanctions. I think in, in the U.S. Uh, Congress has played a very, very important role in stopping or preventing. So if there's been no tenement 2.0 in Hong Kong, I think the Congress is very, it should really take the majority of, of the credit. So, so I mean, Finally, you know, what in the coming weeks and months will signal to you, broadly speaking, where the situation is headed? Are there any key inflection points to look out for in the coming future? Yeah, so right now we see in the middle of of relative calm, both because of the landslide victories in the district council elections that kind of got people a bit cheer up. Um, you know, in in kind of a very otherwise a big picture of uh, you know gloomy future, and then also because the U.S. passed the act, and that has also cheered many people up. So in the past two weeks, they've been relative calm. And last Sunday, there was another protest. So after August 18th, the police would routinely deny pe- people application for the no objection permit. And if you don't have that permit, your protest, your rally demonstration would be unlawful assembly and subject to police violence. So last Sunday, the police actually granted a permit, except that even when the, the, the demonstration was legal, before, it, before the protest ended, the police began to fire pepper spray and, t- and tear gas again. And that again got people upset. And so this is a good time to think about for the protesters to think about where to go because they have suffered from very extreme attrition. By now, the police have arrested 5,890 people. And a lot of those, as we we said before, that many people upon arrest and also uh, further in detention centers subject to torture. And many people suffer from very, very severe injuries. And, you know, some of them have even become decapacitated, disabled. And how, and this is not, so more direct confrontations with the police would not really help to, to, to keep the movement resilient. So what we're seeing also is that there's been a lot of talk of getting people more organized to have a genuine general strike. There have been multiple calls for general strikes, and they haven't been very successful. Now, there was a very successful one on August 5th. And even Catholic Pacific, uh, hundreds of, of uh, uh, flight crew and ground crew, they participated. And to the point that they actually shut down, they, ca- they caused many, many uh, flights to cancel. Beijing immediately re- uh, took revenge and took over Catholic Pacific. And so uh, now... When people so when people organize strikes, when people they organize boycotts, they don't get uh, arrested, they don't get the bones broken, but they can get themselves fired. Hmm. And this is also yeah. what Hong Kong people call white terror. Yeah. But so then, but then that is something that you can do. You can kind of you know 
do something to minimize the impact. So people are talking about getting better organized, organizing uh, uh, stronger labor unions, and also connecting to democracy businesses with to democracy activists. Because activists, when they're fired, then you know you ha- they can have to find jobs. So there are also a lot of pro democracy businesses, and if those businesses are connected to pro pro democracy activists, even if given China's economic power, it's very difficult to really boy- to really impose any economic costs on China. We can see that you know NBA coach made a tweet that we stand with Hong Kong. And so NBA yeah. game. I did a whole episode on, on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so can, can I can I just ask you a question based on the dynamics you, you just discussed? And and sorry if I'm keeping you longer than I promised, but I, I uh, I'm, I'm helping you serve your mission, as you said, talking about <laughs> talking about the the Hong Kong protests. So so my question is this: I mean, you know, initially um, that protest over the protests over the summer were were huge. It was like a mass mobilization, two million people. You know, something like half the population. You know, you had, you had parents bringing their kids in strollers to, to the yes. protests, but now it's devolved into something a bit more violent. And, and you also have these kind of sporadic lunchtime protests as well, in which, you know, people in, in suits seemingly from their downtown offices and financial buildings in, in Hong Kong, you know, join the protests over their lunch break. Um, but, you know, it just seems as, as if um, the space for like, you know, your general middle class folk is is shrinking um, as the protest becomes more violent and the suppression against the protest becomes more violent. Is that a fair assessment? That like the, you, the yes, you're the quite right. This is what, yeah. yeah, you're right. This is why I said that the attrition is so heavy that uh, just having more confrontations with the police and risking arrest and risk taking you know more, uh, more more injuries. This is not going to be sustainable. But then those flash protests at lunchtime, and also the police, the, although the police have been firing tear gas and also arresting people in Central, but then if you are, but then when people come out to protest, make to have flash protests at lunchtime in suits, that actually resend a message that, you know, this movement is not just about a bunch of young radicals. This is, you know, a whole society movement. This has very broad-based support. And also, there have been many surveys showing that, but many people will say, oh, those surveys are just done by liberal academics. They don't count. But the district council elections really tell us that, you know, this, this, this societal support is very solid. This also means that um, people are really thinking that there may be other alternative ways to continue to protest, to keep the pressure, to keep the momentum, but without... Um, more uh, uh, more risk to the, the young protesters. This is why people are talking about very kind of creating alternative yellow autonomy, an alternative yellow economy. Yellow meaning to democracy, mm. the connecting people together, that people can continue to protest and then if they get fired, they, they, it's not the end of the world. And then um, also people who study nonviolence tactics, they say that, you know, very often... Methods of concentration, like pro- like demonstrations, rallies, is you know you show the size of people's power, but yet those uh, methods of concentration are also very vulnerable to police abuses. When you stay home or you have strikes, when you have boycotts, it's a lot harder for the police to arrest people, or at least you know to arrest you. It's not illegal to to strike, but then people, so you don't get arrested, but you get you, you can get fired. This is why people are creating this alternative yellow economy. So, so as to keep the momentum, to keep up with the pressure. Uh, well, Professor, thank you so much for your time. And now I'm going to have to go search C-SPAN for your congressional testimony. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank okay. you for having me.
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Victoria Tinvohui. That was a very helpful and useful in context setting conversation, I thought. Oh, and uh, she emailed me just after our conversation to uh, let me know that the two members of the United States Senate who visited Hong Kong at that crucial time were Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. And interestingly enough, these are two you know, quite conservative uh, Republicans. Ted Cruz from Texas and Holly from Missouri. All right. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.